in this Lenten season, um, we are particularly looking at the difficult teachings of Jesus, those uh, things He said that make us uncomfortable uh, with the idea that He is trying to move us forward from comfort to being awakened. Uh, and this is a particularly uncomfortable conversation that Jesus has. In fact, honestly, just reading it feels a little bit weird. All of this about eating my flesh and drinking my blood just sounds, yeah. Um, I, I was thinking this week about a movie that I'm not going to show a clip of called The Silence of the Lambs. You guys, anyone seen The Silence of the Lambs? Uh, and there's a bad guy in there named Hannibal Lecter who is a cannibal. And the last scene of the movie, this movie is like, I don't know, 700 years old. So if you haven't seen it yet, it's your own fault, okay? So last scene of the movie, um, he has escaped, and he calls the FBI agent who, who was um, kind of um, working with him throughout the movie, and he gives her some grief. And then his last comment is, I'm sorry I have to go. I see an old friend I want to have for dinner. Gah! <laughs> and it's just, yeesh. That feeling of yeesh is the feeling that the Jewish people have when Jesus gives this sermon, okay? I mean, it is just that yucky. Uh, by the way, now that feeling doesn't go away. It sort of stays with the Christian church. And in the early days of the church under the Roman Empire, one of the primary accusations was that we were cannibals because um, people heard about Scriptures like this and they knew that uh, we did this thing every time we got together called um, communion. And, and at the time in the early church, if you were not baptized, you weren't even allowed to stay in the room when communion happened, right? You had to leave. Uh, and so it was kind of private, kind of secret, and people thought we were doing horrible things, right? Because we were talking about eating flesh and drinking blood. So, um, We've talked about this before, but in the Gospel of John, one of the central themes of the Gospel is the ways the world misunderstands Jesus. Uh, and, and the misunderstandings of the world are always opportunities for Jesus to more fully explain who He is and what His kingdom will look like. So you can usually assume that if somebody in the Gospel of John initially interprets Jesus' words in one way, that that's probably wrong. So the first way that the people interpret Jesus' words is He's going to literally give them His flesh to eat. Right? And even though Jesus goes on and on about my body is real food and my flesh is real, my blood is real drink, um, we can assume He's not literally talking about cannibalism, okay? Um, there, there is some debate in the Christian church, but I am 100% convinced He's talking about this meal. He's talking about communion. By the way, the Gospel of John is the only gospel that doesn't talk about the Last Supper. Uh, in the uh, final day of Jesus' life in the Gospel of John, He washes the disciples' feet, and they have a meal together, but there is no institution of the supper like there is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's because this passage is that moment, right? This passage is the moment where He begins to teach about this incredibly sacred meal. Uh, and so, I want to think this morning a little bit about this meal that we call the Sacrament of Communion. And um, what we're supposed to learn about it from this passage. And, and, I, and I think one just big idea that, that this meal is designed uh, to bring us life. And I want to think about how that works, how this meal points us to life. So, the, the first component of that um, is that um, this meal reminds us there is no life for us without Christ's death. 
There is no life for us without Christ's death. It's interesting that this becomes the dominant activity of the early church, right? I mean, we read from the very second chapter of the book of Acts. Remember Acts chapter 2 is Pentecost Sunday, and um, 3,000 people are baptized and give their lives to Jesus. And then it's like the very beginning of the church. Then we get a description of what the church did. And we're told that they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of the bread and to prayers, right? From the very, literally the first days of the church, the breaking of the bread was a central thing the church was doing. Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, um, is explaining the rules for the right way to celebrate this meal. In fact, we quote Paul almost every single time we have this meal in our words of institution. There's something about this meal that early on the church said captures the, the central component of our faith. And Jesus says in the Gospel of John in the sixth chapter, in the 51st verse, um, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus says, my life is the price for the life of the world, and I will give it freely. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they institute the sacrament, Jesus always says, do this in remembrance of me, right? Uh, and this meal is that place where we remember the sacrifice of Christ, what He did for us. And, and memory is not our strongest suit. I, I heard a, a story not too long ago about a pastor who went to visit one of his parishioners, and they were sitting down in the home uh, of this husband and wife, and the husband's at the table, and the wife's off doing something else. And the pastor says, hey, you know, Larry, tell me a little bit about what's been going on with you. And Larry said, well, actually, no, I just went to this really interesting seminar. It was all about memory and how we, we can develop our memory and grow it even in our older age. And the pastor said, that's great. Um, who was the person who was in charge of the seminar? I, maybe I've heard of them. And Larry said, ah, oh, gosh, you know, it's funny, but… Um, what, what do you call that, that flower that smells really good but has thorns? And the pastor said, you mean a rose? And they said, yeah, hang on. Hey, Rose, what was the name of that speaker? <laughs> Sometimes a groan is as good as a laugh. Uh, we, we struggle with memory, right? And in fact, as you read through the story of Scripture, um, this may be the central command is to remember, remember what God has done for us. And so, on the very first days of the church, we said, we have to remember the sacrifice of Christ, and this meal is how we keep it alive for ourselves. It's fascinating to me that um, the, the death of Christ became the central theme of our, of our church, right, of our faith. Um, it's not very comfortable. It's kind of awkward that our Savior died as a common criminal on a cross. Um, it would be great if we could just focus instead on the moral teaching of Jesus or focus instead on His interpretation of Torah or focus instead on the miracles that He did or could we just like mainly focus on the empty tomb? That would be great, right? But, but the symbol of our faith became a cross because every time we gathered together, we did this in remembrance of Him. We remembered the death of Christ so that we could live. So the first purpose of this meal, the way it brings us life, is it reminds us there is no life for us without Christ's death. And every time we celebrate this meal, we remember what He has done for us. 
Uh, the second component of, of this meal um, and how it points us to life is it reminds us that we have no life unless Christ's life is in us. We have no life unless Christ's life is in us. There's been a lot of debate about what happens in communion, right? Over the, the history of the, the Western civilization, we've actually um, fought some battles over what happens in communion, metaphorical and literal battles. Uh, in the 1200s, I think 1215 A.D., the medieval church decided about something called transubstantiation, right, which is a big word. It just means that they believed the bread, um, when the priest offered the words of institution, became literally and physically the body of Jesus, and the wine became literally and physically the blood of Jesus. Some really interesting side effects of, of transubstantiation. One of those is you, you can't just throw the stuff away afterwards, right? Because it's literally Christ's body and blood. Somebody has to finish off that bread and finish off that wine. And I'm sure there's many priests that were willing to pay that price. Um, but you can't just throw it away. It's, and, and, and what happens if a crumb falls on the floor and a mouse eats the crumb? This is something that's written about extensively in medieval um, philosophical, theological literature. Well, that mouse is going to heaven. It's now united with Jesus. Um, but maybe the most significant, and I would argue problematic component of that understanding of the sacrament um, came in, in the observance and not reception of the meal that became dominant in the Middle Ages. So, um, most Catholic churches in the Middle Ages would have had three altars, one on the side, one on the front of the church, and one on the other side, right? uh, And very often during Mass on a Sunday, the priests would be located at all three altars, and they would offer Mass in, in order, so over there first, and then here, and then there. And the congregation would actually go and watch Mass three times. Why? Because they've been told it was a miracle, right? And the miracle happens as the priest breaks the bread and pours the wine, it becomes the body and blood of Jesus. So they went for an awesome show, right? and they'd see the show three times. You know what they didn't do in the Middle Ages? They didn't eat the bread. They didn't drink the wine. In fact, this became such a huge problem that the Catholic Church actually had to pass an edict in the Middle Ages saying that if you don't actually eat the bread and drink the wine at least once in the course of an entire year, you're going to hell. Because literally no one was doing it. They were just coming to watch the show. This is exactly what's happening in this conversation in John chapter 6, right? Jesus has done an amazing miracle. He's fed the 5,000, and they come back and they say, hey, we want another show. That was so cool. Can we have some more signs? And Jesus says, I, I want to offer you something better than a show. Right? I want to offer you life. But that life is going to come in connection and relationship with me, not just from watching the amazing things that I can do. So our spiritual ancestors came along and they said, hey, you know what? We do think there's a miracle that happens in communion, but it doesn't happen when the priest breaks the bread and pours the wine. It happens when you eat it. It happens when you eat it. And, and this stuff is like literally juice and literally bread, right? And if there's extra, I don't even like grape juice that much. I just pour it out at the end of the day, okay? Um, but when you eat it, if you are a Christian, then a miracle happens. 
then the Holy Spirit comes and and fills up your heart in a way that you can't achieve on your own, more so than just a time of regular prayer, more so than just a time of regular worship. There is something extraordinary that happens when God comes and feeds our spirits through this meal. Jesus says, they will abide in me and I in them. It's like we get an extra portion of God's spirit in our lives every time we share this meal. Um, I was having a conversation with a friend yesterday uh, just before the funeral, and they came in and just sort of catching me up. I hadn't seen them in a while about what they've been doing in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, this friend, unfortunately, had, had lost their job early on because of all the business closures that happened. So in the midst of a lot of extra free time, they started remodeling their house. And this friend, I guess, is pretty handy, much more so than I am. So he was doing it all himself. And he said, Jim, you know, in the last 11 months, I have remodeled the guest bedroom, all of the bathrooms, the living room, and the basement. And I just got a a new job a few weeks ago, but I decided to go ahead and tear my bedroom down to the studs. And I'm going to work on that next. And I thought, um, what a beautiful image of what Christ does for us, that um, in stages, right, in stages over time, God is remodeling our lives. And we come to this meal and we receive the presence of God in a unique and special way, and we say, God, hey, you know what? I don't know what the next piece of me that needs to be remodeled is, but it's all yours. Tear it down to the studs. Do what you have to do. Um, I need your strength to make it happen, right? Um, God, what's next for me? This, this sacrament reminds us uh, that Christ abides in us and we in Him. And it gives us just a little more strength, just a little more strength to be faithful, to be loving, to be courageous, to be hopeful, to be the people Christ has called us to be. This meal... Um, points us to life because it reminds us of Christ's death for us. It points us to life because it reminds us that He lives in us and we in Him. It also points us to life because it reminds us that we live in regular dependence upon Christ. Uh, And and this is such a a, a central idea. We need Jesus all the time, not just sometimes. Like we need food and bread, we need Him all the time. You guys know that I am a little bit of a tech nerd, and um, I'm not going to get paid for this, but I, you know, Apple doesn't give me any money, but I have like a lot of Apple stuff, right? So I have like the watch and the phone and the iPad and all that, and I love it, and I am always amazed how much that stuff can do. Like my phone is a calculator and a camera and an email device, and I think it makes phone calls still, just all kinds of cool stuff. Um, but when I travel, I have a really bad habit, right? I have never once gone on a trip and forgotten my phone. You know what I forget all the time? I always forget my charger, right? Um, so this little doodad um, almost always stays home when I go somewhere. You know what good my phone is without this? It's a really great and expensive paperweight, right? That's what it is. Uh, and and I got to tell you, Christ 
has given us so much, right? We have so many gifts. We have the ability to do amazing things. We are made in the image of God. But without a connection to God, eventually our lives become as empty as your phone without power. One of the great challenges and sins in Scripture is our desire for independence from God. And we see this throughout the Bible in the Old Testament. Remember the story of Adam and Eve, right, where um, the serpent comes to Eve and says, don't you want to be like God, knowing good from evil? And Eve says, yeah, I want to I be wise like God, so I'm going to eat this fruit. Or the Tower of Babel, right, where the people say, hey, we want to make a name for ourselves so that we will be secure in ourselves. We won't need anybody. We won't even need God. Or the prodigal son, right, who says, hey, Father, I want to be done with you. I want to be independent. Just give me the inheritance I'll get when you die, and I'm out of here. And again and again in Scripture, God says, you weren't made for independence from me. You're made to be plugged into me all the time. You're made to be wholly dependent on me, like a people in the wilderness who have to gather manna every day. Um, by the way, did you notice something cool that uh, in, in the manna, if they gathered too much and they tried to keep it overnight, it, it got gross, right? I mean, worms and, and rot, because God wanted them to be reliant upon Him every day. What did Jesus teach us to pray for? Give us this day our daily bread, right? Plug into me every day, Jesus says. Our spirits will starve unless they are fed daily on Christ. And that's why Jesus connects belief to His life, to to this meal. In fact, He says um, that those who believe in me will live. And then He says, "Um, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. He says that belief is related to dependence on me. Uh, And I think this is one of the greatest challenges for us in the Christian faith, maybe especially in the Protestant faith, is we have this idea that that belief is about me, right? Uh, I believe in God. I have a strong faith. Instead of saying, no, belief is about being plugged in to the one who's sufficient, right? Belief is about trusting in Jesus in every aspect of my life, recognizing that I'm I can't make it without Him. Uh, and, and it's not that I need to believe in Him once, but that I need to be daily dependent upon Him as I am for food and for water, for bread, and for wine. One of my favorite sermons um, comes from a lady named Barbara Brown Taylor. Uh, it's from a book called Bread of Angels, and it's about this story of manna uh, and this account in John 6. And she says, if your manna has to drop straight out of heaven, looking like a perfect loaf of buttercrust bread, then chances are you're going to go hungry a lot. When you do not get the miracle you are praying for, you're going to think that God is ignoring you or punishing you, or worse yet, that God is not there. You're going to start comparing yourself to other people and wondering why they seem to have more to eat than you do, and you may start complaining to heaven about that. Meanwhile, you're going to miss out on a lot of other things God is doing for you because they are too ordinary or too transitory, like manna, that fine, flaky substance that melted as soon as the sun got hot. Because it is not what counts, it is not what you have that counts, but who sent it. And the miracle is that God is always sending us something to eat. Day by day, God makes known to us in the simple things that sustain our lives some bread some love, some breath, some wine. 
all those absolutely essential things that are here today and gone tomorrow. Everything else is gravy, but it is easy to forget that. Come to my house and I will show you a pantry crammed with canned food and a refrigerator so full the green beans fall out every time I open the door. It is my manna insurance, just in case God does not come through. But at least I know who gave it to me, so perhaps that makes it manna too. She goes on to say that the Christian life is about being on manna alert, about being aware and seeking uh, that regular dependence upon Christ, that what we need more than anything in this world is time with Jesus. So I want to ask you this morning, as we come and celebrate this sacrament and this meal, I want to ask you if you're living um, a dependent or an independent life. If you are recognizing today your desperate need to be plugged into Jesus in every aspect of your life, or if you are trying to run your charge as far as you can before your battery gets to zero. Because the beauty of this meal is that Jesus is always ready to enter our lives if we will let him in. The beauty of this meal is that Jesus willingly lays down his life that we might live, that he chooses to make his home within us, uh, and that he is enough for us, not just today, but every day. The beauty of this meal is that Christ is the life that we need. So I invite you as we prepare our hearts and minds to celebrate this sacrament to reflect on where you are going for life and what it means that Christ is real flesh and real food for us today. Thanks be to Him. Amen.